The developer behind a proposed $18 million housing project in Bloomington says the long vacant property is ripe for redemption. There is something about a quality of place that speaks to people's identity. You'll hear from Robbie Osenka. That's coming up on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm Lauren Warnicke, in for John Norton. On today's show, Bloomington Normal Hospitals begin a new, faster treatment for stroke victims. My Dr. Kindred says, I'm a miracle, Peg, you're a miracle. Plus, McLean County history maker Guy Fraker traces his passion for Abraham Lincoln history back to his childhood. My great aunt Lola took me to New Salem and the Lincoln sites in Springfield, and New Salem really hooked me. All that after a Bloomington Normal News update. This is WGLT's Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR Network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. They're all doctors of audiology, knowing that they've got the background to do a, a, a complete evaluation and not just sell hearing aids. It's they make that connection for you. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm Lauren Warnicke, in for John Norton. The Bloomington City Council has delayed a vote on a proposed $18 million housing project near downtown. The developers are asking for about $4.5 million in incentives, including TIF money, to build 24 townhomes and 48 apartment units. Last night, the divided council chose to delay its vote until June 12th amid debate about whether the city should require the developer to pay prevailing wages and if the project will alleviate a community-wide shortage of affordable housing. Rabio Senga is one of the lead developers on the project. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, Osenga says he's hopeful despite the setback. I'm not going to lie, there's a little bit of disappointment. Um, We've been working on this project for over three years and um, actively with the city in through the TIF process for eight months. At the same time, I've got a lot of hope. I got to be honest, I I didn't uh, pursue becoming a real estate developer. (laughs) This is this is not my why. Um, But helping things and people reach their potential is my why. And so I trust our local government to make the decisions that are best for our community. And I believe that um, they'll do the work uh, to come together, to ask good questions, to, to lean into the city staff uh, and TIF experts to, to understand what, what, it, what we're really talking about here. And uh, ultimately, I, I, I trust they'll make the best decision for our community and, and uh, we'll respect that, uh, whatever it is. Am I understanding this correctly that um, you, you and your partner, you can wait until this, this mid-June meeting date for a decision. But anything beyond that, not so much. Um, can you kind of walk our listeners through your, your timeline and your, sure. your deadlines? So we do live in Illinois, so we have a hard winter. Uh, and so uh, that impacts construction considerably. And so our, our intent and, and, and really we've built out a business plan that uh, is dependent on us getting started this fall. Probably the biggest is the TIF uh, district has an expiration date. And so again, we've built our business plan for this project based off of the amount of time that is left for 
TIP eligible reimbursements to be made available to us as a developer. And so the clock has been ticking <laughs> before we even started looking at the project and is still ticking. And so every uh, fiscal year that we miss of TIF eligibility uh, would make this no longer viable. So initially, uh, city staff described what you were looking to build as luxury apartments in townhomes. Uh, at Monday night's council meeting, a deputy city manager said, actually, no, they aren't luxury. He preferred to describe them as market rate uh, units. So what's the truth there? The truth is um, I used the word luxury in a proposal. <laughs> and it's a word that um, is more of a marketing word than a reality word of, of what we're actually building. I'll be honest, I'm not a great wordsmith. <laughs> and so this, this one's my fault. What we're just trying to build here is um, based off of the housing market analysis study that was done in April of 2022 by the EDC. And um, they specifically um, called out in that study uh, that with the exception of the one uptown circle building in Normal, there has been no new higher density infill development or greenfield development with higher quality design elements and competitive amenities. Based off of that study, that's, that's really what we built our pro forma around, is trying to meet that need specifically on this project. We're working on numerous other projects as contractors and developers both um, that meet other needs by the time we're completed with this project. It will inevitably place this in the higher end of the market. Um, uh, but we believe that there's a need for that. Do you think that making these types of units available, even you know, on the higher end, as you, as you just said, do you think that does have a positive effect on the lower parts of the housing market? Do you think that opens up potentially those types of units as people move up the chain? I can't say that there's a direct correlation, um, but it is. this is a part of the puzzle. Um, we believe there are people who are looking for other uh, alternatives to live in this community, some of which who are already living here in, in, in whatever form they're living, and some who are living outside of our community who desire to live here, that when we bring on these units or single-family units in some of the new developments in town or 55-plus or affordable housing, any, any new unit that's brought on is going to create movement. And part of that is there are people who are wanting to move but they don't see what they're looking for, so they don't put their home up for sale, or they don't release their lease up to be occupied by someone else. And so we believe that any unit <laughs> added is part of the solution. So let's talk for a minute about, about who will be building this housing project yes. potentially. You know, Some of the opposition on Monday night centered around whether you as the developer should be required to pay prevailing wages. That type of thing should be put into the redevelopment agreement as a requirement. Is that a viable option for you, and, and why or why not? Here's the hard part when we talk about prevailing wage. There's this misnomer that anyone who is not a union shop are not providing fair pay and benefits and work culture to their employees. And I, I think that does a disservice. We here in central Illinois have a vibrant, <laughs> a vibrant labor force um, of both union and non-signatory contractors. Uh, both of which who are brave, <laughs> who have stepped into a into a hard uh, work, work with your hands, uh, work in under tough deadlines, and uh, and both have to still, whether union or non-signatory, 
abide by the laws and expectations that our municipalities have put forward. And so all we're asking for on this project and with all of the projects that we serve is the continued ability to invite both union and non-signatory uh, companies to participate here. We live in a capitalistic culture and uh, economy. And, um, and at some point in time, if the costs exceed the value that uh, is needed for us to move forward, then, then there is no project. Tell me about this, how the project came about. Where did you see potential here that you wanted to, to proceed? Actually, that's a great word, potential. That's been a big word for me throughout my whole life and my career. It's something I feel like I'm not good at a lot of things, man, but helping others and organizations, people, things uh, reach their potential is just something I've always been really passionate about. Uh, I love redemption. And, uh, and so pretty early on, this site became kind of in the mix of the conversations. Honestly, the city invited developers to look at it. And honestly, they engaged a really wonderful local architecture firm uh, called Workbench Architects to do some renders of what the site could be. And honestly, man, the first time I saw those renders, I was like, oh, wow, that could be so uh, meaningful for our downtown to be able to have these sort of Chicago-style walk-up townhomes. I just thought, man, it would be really neat if there's any way I could be a part of helping bring that into fruition. That's Robbie Osenga, one of the lead developers on the proposed $18 million housing project near downtown Bloomington. He spoke with WGLT's Ryan Denham. Osenga is also involved with the redevelopment of the former C2 East building downtown into the Northwestern Mutual building. That's a smaller project that's now nearing completion after some delays. He says Northwestern Mutual's staff is moving in next week. Someone suffering a stroke loses nearly two million brain cells each minute, so a fast response is critical. Bloomington Normal Hospitals have started using a new treatment that administrators say is faster to deliver and will likely lead to a greater chance of recovery from stroke, as WGLT's Eric Stock reports in the latest edition of Sound Health. Peg Shea of Bloomington doesn't remember much about what happened on April 15th. She was in the hospital preparing for surgery on her spine. A nurse came to check on her and noticed Shea was struggling to speak and her right side appeared weak. I was asleep and then I was awake and I people are telling me to move my right hand, move my left hand, can you roll over, can you do all of these instructions. She later found out she was having a stroke. She was given an IV of what's called TNK, tenecteplase. It's a clot-busting agent that's been used previously to treat blood clots near the heart and lungs. Shea became the first patient at Carl Broman Medical Center in Normal to get the TNK injection for her brain. It worked. She says the doctor did a happy dance. My doctor kindred says, I'm a miracle, Peg. You're a miracle. Um, I don't know how to think about that, but I am thankful. Shay says she's also grateful she was already at the hospital when she had the stroke. Melissa Reedy is the stroke program coordinator at Carl Broman. Reedy explains why medical professionals believe TNK will be more effective than previous treatments. The best part about this drug is that it's it's easier to mix for our pharmacists to mix up and for the nursing staff to administer to the patient so we can treat patients quicker and help their symptoms subside even quicker than before. 
Reedy says when Carl Bromenner receives a stroke patient, the hospital issues a stroke alert. She says that happens about 400 times a year. She says only a small fraction of those were already in the hospital like Pei Shea was, so that means response times can vary widely. Reedy says TNK can work within four and a half hours of the first stroke symptoms. Our goals at the hospital is to have that medication in the patient um, within an hour of arrival, ideally 45 minutes of arrival. Reedy says in Shea's case, the IV was injected 34 minutes after a nurse detected the stroke. Another way Carl Broman tries to trim critical minutes off response times is through the use of a telehealth service specifically for stroke victims. The hospital was contracted with Colorado-based Blue Sky Neurology to have a neurologist on standby remotely around the clock. They provide an initial assessment via video monitor and determine if the patient needs the TNK injection. Carl Broman's Melissa Reedy says that neurologist can respond within minutes, often more quickly than a neurologist on call locally. If we had a stroke alert, it would, you know, it would take the physician some time, especially if there was a stroke alert at two or three o'clock in the morning. You know, we would call them, wake them up out of bed. They would have to make their way to the hospital. Carl Broman has used the telestroke service for four years, but it just debuted at Carl Eureka Hospital last month. And Melissa Redia Carbroman says response times can also be helped by the patient themselves by watching for warning signs. There's an acronym the medical community uses for detecting signs of a stroke. Be fast. B stands for balance. E for eyes. F is face. A arms. S speech. And T means time, as in it's time to call 911. Peg Shea was fortunate she didn't need to call 911. She was already in the hospital. But she's had her own share of health misfortunes. Her narrowing spine has made it difficult for her to walk long distances, so she uses a wheelchair. Surgery is on hold because she had to go on blood thinners due to the stroke. I'm between a rock and a hard spot right now, being in a wheelchair in pain, knowing that I need surgery, but it's, it's doubtful. Shea has had two strokes. The first was a few years ago. Carl Broman's Melissa Reedy says people who suffer a stroke are more likely to have a second stroke. Peg Shea says she carries that mental burden with her, partly because she sees the toll strokes have taken on others where she lives at the Luther Oaks Retirement Community in Bloomington. Shea says she's grateful that she shows no apparent signs of damage from her first two strokes. I would say I'm as sharp as ever in that, of course, is subject to determination how you um, are going to consider sharp to be. But I have no, no, no problems that I'm aware of. And the strokes have not hurt her sense of humor. Shea says she just hopes if she has another stroke, she can get treated as fast as she did the last time. I'm Eric Stock. Carl Broman's Melissa Reedy says risk factors for stroke include diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, and lack of exercise or sleep. OSF Healthcare, based in Peoria, has also started using the TNK treatment on stroke patients. Support for WGLT health coverage comes from Carl Health. You can count on Carl as your partner in healthcare. Information at carl.org.
Guy Fraker was born in Missouri, raised in New York, and first came to Central Illinois to attend law school at the University of Illinois. He was recruited to a law firm in Bloomington, and the rest, as they say, is history. A lawyer by profession, Fraker's two avocations are studying Abraham Lincoln and land conservation. So it is serendipitous that he wound up here. As part of my ongoing interviews with the 2023 McLean County History Makers, I talked to Fraker about his upbringing and the long arc of his curiosity with an investment in the community. My mom was from Peoria and my dad was from uh, Shelbyville and then eventually the family moved to Champaign-Urbana. So uh, coming out here summers and uh, uh, my mom sort of raised me to come back to Illinois, bless her heart. And, uh, <laughs> Smart so, woman. <laughs> yeah, it was, amen. And I, it was the right choice for me. And I didn't know anybody in Bloomington at the time, but the firm did come and interview. Costing World came and interviewed me. I loved what I saw about the town, Bloomington Normal, and I still do. It's about as good a place to live and with all that's going on around the country, weather-wise, uh, social, economic forces, that this is still a pretty good place to be. I know you're a Lincoln guy. Were right. you a Lincoln guy before you moved here? Oh, yes. I was, uh, in 1948, my my great aunt Lola, my, tw- my grandmother's twin sister, took me to New Salem and the Lincoln sites in Springfield. And New Salem really hooked me. The following uh, year, I bought a, my first Lincoln book. I had gone downtown to buy records. And then I happened to go into this bookstore and found this book and so forth. So I think my, my mom, I thought she'd be so proud that I came home with this book. And she sort of looked at me like, you, this, you bought this instead of records? She was <laughs> pleased, but she was amazed, you know. And from then on, uh, it's been a passion of mine. It's kind of serendipity then that a guy who came to practice law in Bloomington uh, was, you know, so attracted to the story of, Another guy that came to practice law in Bloomington. <laughs> well said. That's well said, yes. No. This may be an obvious question, but what is it that really pulls you to Abraham Lincoln? He was a man of the highest integrity. He was a man of persistence that was demonstrated, of course, in the Civil War, where he was he was told, you know, let's get this thing over with. And he, he was not going to quit this war no matter what. His persistence and just dogged attitude toward saving the Union saved the Union because if the minority can withdraw from the Union because they don't like the way things are going, then ultimately democracy, that, that such a country is doomed. It is not a totally uncommon thing to hear today, just kind of in casual rhetoric around politics of like, oh, we'll just secede, right? Texas will just secede or California will secede or downstate Illinois doesn't want to have anything to do with Chicago. Let's just leave them, right? Right. Uh, So uh, I think that message of resilience demonstrates how, how important Lincoln was. And I we don't have to get too political here, but I do wonder how how you hear and perceive those sorts of casual banters around splitting up this nation. People in the old days disagreed, but respected the disagree the, the other person's point of view and the fact that he had a right to take it. But now everything is so adversarial, and it's it's really concerning. Mm. It really concerns me. So, what do you suggest? Well. 
if we could get Lincoln back, that's, <laughs> there is there is a T-shirt sold at the Presidential Museum. Yeah, it's black T-shirt with white letters that says "I miss Abe." <laughs> <laughs> but we do. We're just going to have to have a president that has the strength to be adversarial and for what he believes, uh, but that also is willing to talk to the other people and work things out. And we just don't see that as much anymore. And mm-hmm. uh, that's that's really what we need. There's one other big topic here that connects you to this place, and that's your um, long involvement in uh, land preservation and conservancy, even though you you ha- are self-proclaimed not a naturalist. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I, don't, right. well, I appreciate you bringing that up. Talk through a little bit of your involvement. I'll in be that. glad to. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't care a bit about that. It hadn't ever occurred <laughs> to me to care about it yet. Uh-huh. And... Uh, um, Loring Merwin, who was the publisher of the Panagraph at the time, asked me if I would donate my services as a young lawyer in town. I'd been here three or four years to organize a not-for-profit called Parklands Foundation. And I've, when if you're new in town, you don't know many people of influence. And when the most important man in town, I think, was Loring Merwin, asked you to do it, you do it. Right. But, but because of that, it, that was transforming in my life because that created my involvement with parklands and then ultimately with the nature conservancy and to to uh, you really have to appreciate the illinois landscape it's a sh- it's not a mu- enough appreciated cuz most of it's been destroyed unfortunately right because of the prairies were so easy to plow under right but on the other hand what we have in illinois that that's left is still magnificent uh, illinois just for example um, the, the scientists, naturalists, so forth, who know more than I do, have created 64 ecosystems in the whole nation. Illinois has eight of those ecosystems. We had 2,200,000 acres of prairie when the settlers arrived. By the time this thing got turned around, we were down to 2,200 acres is all. Mm-hmm. One one-hundredth one of one percent of the acreage left. And we have some of those in our area. The, the original prairies up Western Prairie up right. uh, is an incredible site because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. it's one of the few native prairies left. What was that negotiation process like with Big Ag, right, which is also so important to this region? What was Were you involved in any of those negotiations? Some of that. Mm-hmm. Some of that the, the president of IAA and I'm, I'm having trouble remembering his name now, but he was uh, from Gibson City. And he and I became good friends because of what we, the, the commonality of our interest. Here's what agriculture and conservation organizations have in common, protecting open space. Mm. And what you do with it, then that's where, where there's a clash. But there's enough open space for everybody. You can celebrate Guy Fraker and all the McLean County History Makers at the History Makers Gala on June 21st. Details on the event are available at mchistory.org. And our History Makers interviews wrap up next week with Willie and Charles Halbert. You can read and listen to the whole series on wglt.org. Thank you for choosing WGLT's Sound Ideas, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm Lauren Warnicke. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR Network. Mm-hmm.